and welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. This week's guest is Dean Fairhurst. Dean was a frontman and uh, Sly Diggs. And then after the, uh, during the pandemic, he started a new venture called Standing Man. Um, so we're going to talk about the two bands plus a lot of other things in between. Just kind of to start off, Dean, just tell us a bit about your early life growing up, where, you, where you're from and what life is like for a young Dean Fairhurst. What was life like? Um, okay, good question. Uh, I started, uh, I grew up in a place called Warrington, uh, mm. more specifically a smaller village uh, of a few thousand people called Burton Wood, which is a... A particular place, but it, we, we I had a nice upbringing, and sort of it's sort of in the countryside to some degree. There's elements of sheep and and farm animals in and around that place, but it's it has character. That's definitely a, a thing you can say about Burton Wood. Um, my upbringing was was not too dissimilar from a lot of people in that area, sort of working class, upbringing, sort of always elements of trauma throughout your, your younger years. And <clears throat> I know people had harder upbringings than I would, but certainly for me as who I am, it was always, it, you know, it was elements of sort of traumatic experiences, parents breaking up and mm-hmm. one, this thing, one thing and another. Um, but then I I spent a lot of time with my brother, my older brother, Jimmy, or James as I call him. Uh, and we, we, we used to play a lot of sport when we were younger, especially rugby. My father played professional for for Wigan, uh, Captain Wigan, and, and played for Warrington right. um, in the 80s. Um, so just naturally we, we picked up the rugby ball and we'd always have a rugby ball in our hands since... It's a very young age, so we'd always be out and playing, doing those things. He all, my father always, yeah, usually, he also, after he sort of finished playing rugby, he he worked in and around from like sales point of views and different jobs. And he, on the side, he would always play in a in an Irish band. <clears throat> we have a sort of Irish relatives, right. some sort of loose connection to, to Ireland. Um, so he would sing a lot of sort of Irish songs, which I would watch him. From time to time, singing a band. He didn't. He didn't really play an instrument. I think he played the barrel a little bit, very loosely. But he would sing. He was very good at entertaining. Um. So I would watch him there. That was sort of a first initial uh, introduction into sort so, some sort of performance, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But he was he was a minor when um it, just before he started playing rugby. My mother was was a hairdresser. And um, they split up when we were a little bit younger, so we'd live from from one house to the next sort of thing. Um, and then at the same time of sort of listening to all the Irish music, I knew all the Irish songs anyway. It would be many a time that my dad would be in a pub and have me get up when I was very young, standing on a stool singing Irish songs. It's always quite funny when you're in Ireland and there's an English boy stood up on a stool singing Irish rebel songs. <laughs> um, People give you funny looks, but I love that. I love that idea of uh, the camaraderie that you get in those those sort of pub areas, and certainly that you know the likes of the Dubliners and uh, Christy Moore and all those songs, those irreverent uh, songs about life. And certainly from a from a male perspective, it was it sort of inbred in me uh, and indented into my soul, really, with regards to that sort of type of music. I always love that music and I always sort of think that that was a, a catalyst in some ways of, of me getting into the idea of music and what it did to me. And then, um, you know, my, my mum was always into great music. She, she always turned me on to the Beatles as well as, 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 you know, different bands, different all artists. She was into Squeeze and stuff like that. I became fascinated at a young age about, certainly about the Beatles. The Beatles as usually, the, uh, the stereotype um, of a band that you know ignites 
some sort of flame within many artists, certainly from this area. Um, so I was obsessed with the Beatles at a young age. Then, you know, my as I got older, my brother, he he would he was sort of he got scholarship at, at playing for Bradford. I was sort of playing at Warrington Wolves rugby when I was really young. Didn't really see that much future in it because I, my head had gone in different directions at, you know, introduction of alcohol and, and women is usually the way. So, yeah. and then um, I wanted to find, uh, I wanted to sort of explore my fascination with music. I just, I, I remember having in my school years, in high school, just forcing someone to, to uh, forcing one of my parents to buy a, a Walkman, you know, one of those Walkmans. Yeah. Walk, and I'd, I'd have like the, the lead for the headphone through the sleeve and I'd just sneak it into class and I'd just listen to music all day. I'd listen, I'd go through so many tapes that they wouldn't be, they would be unplayable by the time, you know, I'd finished sort of, had enough of that. I'd just listen to them in and out, keep turning the tape all the way through the day in school. And we'd always sort of swap with friends, different sort of tapes. And I'd steal a lot of music from my brother. I remember my brother buying Ocean Colour Scene, I think it's Muscle Shoals and Mm-hmm. Uh, that off him we're fascinated by that and and it was just a big journey on where I went next it, I wasn't really restrained by what type of music I was listening to I was sort of even from a young age I would listen to, to, to any sort of type of music not just sort of guitar music I'd be excited by any of it really a lot of the bluesy um, influences and rock and roll influences of the Beatles because I was obsessed with the Beatles, then it would, you know, my my exploration into their influences would become deeper and deeper, and like Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry. I'd be obsessed. I, I remember the first time listening to like Howling Wolf and thinking, how can someone sound like that? Like that voice is like incredible. It doesn't seem like it's part of this planet somehow. And uh, I just became engrossed by, by music in general, really. You know, yeah. steal, stealing records off my brother, as I say, the Verve, and then so like it changed to like sort of nineties music at that time. I, I was I was talking to a friend recently, and he was like, "What was the first record you ever bought?" and and it came on the radio yesterday, and it was uh, "Groove Is in the Heart" by Delight, which is completely different to the yeah, sort of type yeah, of yeah. Like, but but I, I thought it's still a great record, and it was at the time when I was still young, and I remember having that as the first record that I ever got. Which was, uh, I think, seven inch, something like that. Um, That's a band that I remind my first record was um, Chesney Hawks. Oh, was it? Is uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just out myself here. I don't usually uh, like to embarrass myself, but <laughs> <laughs> you don't know when you're young, anyway. I'm, I'm sure I've bought some terrible records that I'll never tell anyone. <laughs> um, but yeah, but... you know, I, I, I had I had a good time. Um, in, in that exploration, I, I found, I think my mother, I forced her to buy me a, a, an acoustic guitar down in Cardiff. My brother went to university in Cardiff and I visited him quite a lot. And then me and my mum went down once. And uh, I forced her to get me a an acoustic guitar from the guitar shop there. She had, the, had a great guitar shop. I can't remember what it's called. I don't know if it's still there. It's right near the castle, uh, just opposite the, the entrance of the castle there. And I, I just sat and played as long as good. So I, I, I sort of formed then into going into sort of slide digs, writing songs before I could even really play an instrument. Right. Um, and I sort of was learning guitar a little bit later. So I was like maybe 16, 17. I know a lot of people learn learn a lot earlier because there was not there was no instruments around my house at the time. So the same did, you, did you study music or in uh, school? I did. Uh, I did later on <clears throat> into college, uh, and then a little bit of university in in John Moore's in Liverpool. But that was at the round of the time things were kicking off with with slide digs, uh, and then we were sort of going out touring and doing those things. So I did finish it, but it but I but I lost interest by the certainly by the end of it. That was like popular music degree, but you know you're naive when you're a kid and. You do yeah. those things, but you just want to do. There's, there was only one thing in my mind that I wanted to do, and that was to travel the world and and play music and write music. You know, that's sort of not not left me that, right. that desire, overwhelming desire to to create. I think I've got 
there's an urge in me that, that that needs to do it. It's like a need to to create, and I don't know what that is. I think it's fascinating. I'm, I'm forever analysing myself. I'm, I'm we can I can be accused of it. My brother as well, to some degree, of being armchair psychologists in the in the way of trying to you know self analyze I suppose and to do better but this thing about music and why we both create because now he, he's he's very successful in his endeavors as a as an actor and as a director and as a uh, producer of uh, of theater you know for non going yeah. sort of theater companies he's got a theater company called not too tame they've done very well and I've done things with him from sort of a music director point of view travel to china and stuff like that so he he's been a huge catalyst for me, I think, to finding that sort of artistic voice. Um, yeah, he's inspirational in many ways, Jim. So, how did um, Slide Eggs come about? Then, how did you form the band, and who who was in the band uh, to so, begin with? So we had originally it was me and the guitarist Louis Mengai. We started, did we have an idea of forming? I think we had, we both had an idea of forming the band. It was at the time when the music industry was good in the sense that, you know, the Strokes had been out, the Libertines had been out, the Arctic Monkeys were out. I remember first hearing the Arctic Monkeys and I'd met I'd met a girl in, in I was just on a night out, random night out, young in Warrington. Um, and I'd woke up in the morning, sort of hungover, looking at my phone and getting a text off saying someone saying, Oh, I've got tickets to to V Festival in like Chelmsford. And I couldn't remember who it was. It was like like heavy, young hedonistic life. And anyway, a long story short, I just met this girl randomly. I must have been telling her that I really wanted to go to a festival. I'd never been to a festival before properly. She invited me to a festival. There was like four of her mates that was in the car and she was driving down and mother was taking us down to the V Festival. And she put on a CD of the Arctic Monkeys before they were even big. And I was like, what's this? Yeah. This is so, it's like George Formby with guitars. It's like, this is great. Um, and in around that time, we were sort of forming slide eggs. Me and Louie would play a lot. We'd, we'd have like a, a tape deck. And we'd just start writing before we could sort of play guitar. He, he'd sort of learned before because his dad played guitar. I hadn't really learned that much, but we were just, constantly playing in our own rooms and then also we'd meet up and we'd put a you know a tape deck in front of us and just start recording things and writing together different ideas and riffs and and then we we asked one of our other mates who who wasn't necessarily uh, musical at all really less less musical in the family sense of as I um to become the drummer uh, his name was Chris Chris Finner so we we started learning. He was he was learning as well the drums, and then we had a bass player, uh, Adam Thornton, all from all from school really, all right. from high school. And then we you know we just started to try and formulate formulate some sort of noise, uh, and organise that in some degree. And like every band, we were, we were pretty terrible, I'd say. And then the songs started to to there was something in the songs I think, you know whether we were trying to. It was some of it was pastiche of the Libertines or you know Arctic Monkeys. There was always an element in there that that wasn't necessarily pastiche or wasn't necessarily just a complete rip off. There was something unique about it, whether it yeah. was some sort of lyric lyrical part or tune of it. I, I don't know, but there was something. And we created like a fan base in the local area, so we would have like coaches traveling up and down the the, the nation, really. To like Manchester, Liverpool, or down to London, we'd have like good following there. And I think mainly just because people wanted a night out and the music scene was good in that point. And then at a period of time, my other friend Peter, Peter Fleming, who was playing with a different band at the time, I think it was Louis, he was playing in the Louis Brothers band, who's mm -hmm. the real an older brother as well. And uh, one, one from one gig, our drummer, who, who unfortunately couldn't really play at all he was off and we got Pete in to, to cover him. And then when we played that gig, it just seemed right. It was like, wow, this guy's this guy's naturally uh, effervescent in his performance. I, you know, I, I completely became 
enthralled by his performance and thinking that's yeah that makes me feel comfortable especially as a lead singer where yeah it's got to be about you in your mind you know what i mean and and having the comfortability of thinking that the guy behind is going to come in on time not having to worry but also you know performing in a way that that you know just a pub band so then in my mind it had already been made up that you know i sort of probably need to change the drummer uh, it was difficult, you know, a lot of fans at that time, because we were a close unit, didn't like that that we had to get rid of the old drummer. He, The old drummer had, uh, had took it very badly, you know, caused a little bit of grief, but we're all young, I suppose. Um, and exactly. I think you know, like fans, didn't they? You, the, yeah. The line-up changes and uh, people are maybe loyal to the original line-up to start with, but... Um, as you go forward and you kind of you create music, people soon want to, who who's there at the time. Yeah, I, I just don't think we would have got anywhere anyway if we'd have kept that drum, it kept that drummer because he just he wasn't progressing enough. And, and we were young anyway. Whether I did it in the right way, I probably didn't. I was young, right? But I tried to do it in the right way of like you know sitting down and saying, "Look, mate, I can't do this, and we've got to change the drummer, and that's it." But you know. Maybe I was a little bit harsh. I don't know. I can't remember that much. I probably blocked it out. But then, you know, we 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 started doing getting to to a little bit of notoriety then thereafter with Peter on the drums. Um then we we had a bass player who who was a character in himself as well. We 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 started off playing in, in and around uh all over Dublin and all over Ireland, all over the Southern Ireland really. Because we needed more for, for PA systems and stuff like that, so we were sort of a bit working class, so we didn't have a great deal of finances to you know put our hands on to, to buy ourselves all new equipment. So we we had a plan to 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 generate some money by touring in Ireland, and at the time you get treated a lot better financially from playing gigs. So we'd have to we play covers, and we'd also throw in our own music, and we'd do like two and a half hours. And we'd live out the back of a van. We'd have like a transit van where we'd put a long wheelbase where we'd have a bed in the middle, put the gear underneath and sleep on the top bit. Mm-hmm. like a little parcel hole for the for the drivers. And, and we we did that a good few few months back and forth from, from here over in, in Ireland. And that was like some of the best times that I had because you were free and easy, had no worries. And um, you didn't know where you were going to wake up the next morning, you know. It was it was it was a fun time. We'd busk out on Grafton Street and then people would walk past and people that own bars or venues would see us and go, These guys are great, come and play at our place and then we just sort of follow the wind. And I love that time. Um we'd always be getting into trouble of some sort and, you know, chasing women. Playing, see playing these gags at an island and obviously yeah. you mentioned before about your dad and his kind of previous that was there any did you chuck in any label songs from time to time on your sets oh the most definitely so we'd find like <clears throat> usually when the sessions go off in the pubs whether we would just turn up with acoustic guitars and do an unplug thing and we'd usually play but by that time we'd sort of changed the bass player as well from, from from adam thornton to to ben breslin who became the 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 bass player in slide digs in our so, successful years Mm-hmm. And uh, he has a lot of Irish family as well. He yeah, has a great eight Irish sort of relatives and some some fascinating stories. Um, so we would both know a lot of the Irish music and and Louis to some degree. He knew a lot of the Dubliner stuff. So we, we it, that sort of kept us all in 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 twine with one another. I think from a musical point of view, it was just always there. It was sort of a basis of those things. And and of course, we we, we drank a lot of uh, Guinness and. I, th- I think we just lived on Guinness and, and cooked chickens for, for a long period of time. So you can imagine how badly that, that van smelled at the time. But yeah, it was great. And, and I think we, we became tight there doing those sort of strange, you know, tours. And it was exciting. And then things started to pick up a little bit. It's kind of similar in a way to like the Beatles going to Hamburg then. It's kind of like, yeah, you being out there and kind of getting your grounding and maybe like to some extent doing your apprenticeship within the music industry. Yeah, definitely. So I yeah, I think we definitely went over there as boys and came back as men. 
yeah that 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 that's that's true to say i think but it was yeah it was great and i think because there was there was no there was no pressure in that respect because you're young and you mm. you know the pressure of like in this day and age where everyone is sort of can be accused of being a, a careerist and all those things you know so when are we talking then about is this then about 2012 um that's like when your first single came out so is it when about then or is it before then I think I think it's round about then. I'm not I'm not good with dates at all. Some people are like Louis is really good with dates. He's got a mind for it. But um I think it was around about then. So then when we came back and we were demoing, we'd met uh, John Kettle, who's a producer and his sort of long time friend. Now he was in a band called Tansads and uh, they were sort of quite folk rock, um, did quite well and and then he's he's also in a band now called Merry Hell. But he he was the first producer that sort of got us and understood that, you know, we had something. So we, we put together a, a demo album then of material. We hadn't envisaged it being a demo album or an album as such. We were just recording one after another, just any ideas. You know, we, we were shooting ideas then, whether good, bad or indifferent. We were just trying to get them recorded. And we'd, we'd work with him and, you know, I love John. He, he has a sensibility about him that, that you don't see too often and we'd, we've put together sort of some decent material but again we hadn't really pushed for them to be completely polished and at that time we found a, a label called Flick Knife and they got involved to to want us to sign us then and it was quick, quite quickly there was a lot going on at that time for me, so uh, it gets a little bit blurry. So I think okay. it was like 2014 where we, we we basically signed the album to Flick Knife and signed with them. And I envisaged that it was going to be recorded again. That was my thought. Like mm -hmm. they're demos, right? But all of a sudden the album was released and it was out there. And you know, I think there's some really good songs on it. But a lot of them are demos in my eyes. A lot of sort of cringy uh, lyrics, but. But it was good. It was a starting basis for me to know, okay, that's that's the right way to do it. That's the wrong way to do it. <clears throat> and where then, can you, um, where can you get that album? Because obviously, it's having a lot of look on Spotify, it's like nothing like that. So, so, where would you be able to find something like that? I think, I think, I, think that, I don't know if that album got taken down from Spotify. I'm not sure, did it? Uh, I'll have to check that one. But I think you can get it from sort of Flick Knife Records. Right. Oh, how will you look for that? Yeah, but would it would it been like your choice to take it down as as like I was I was watching something just the other day and um some podcast and it was like an, another band and they were talking about some of their early stuff and how they brought it out and it got them to a certain level, but then they, they take it down and re record um because obviously there's mistakes in it, so they might want to as as they progress and get more fans. Yeah, went a more polished kind of product. So was was it kind of your choice to take it down, or was it the the record label's choice? I don't, it, it might have been mine in my silly moments, and not ultimately thinking back about it, you know, it was what it was. I shouldn't really be too precious about it. Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind to to listen to it again. I've not listened to it in a long time. It just just from curiosity, of course. I I think at the time, it, at the time, it probably crawled me in in the sense that it was like that could be so much better. That that piece of art could be so much better, but it's already out, and I didn't really have control over it. Mm -hmm. uh, so and I, and I, I think I think I probably sort of pushed to do that. I think because we probably thought it was going to be recorded again. So I think we took it down to be recorded again once we moved on and signed the. With the management of Trinity Falls, yeah. But then I think we just ended up creating more music and trying the different avenues that way. So obviously, you mentioned um, the boy for the keys, and he came out. I was listening to him a couple of days ago in a podcast, and that he just um, know him, his brother. He's yeah, in the keys. So it was his brother and. Uh, like the, the the singer and the lead guitarist were on a podcast and they were talking and they just happened to mention and Sly Diggs come into that. Yeah. 
which I found it's it's kind of a bit serendipitous, so to speak. Kind of like I, I'm getting you in the podcast, and then all of a sudden, put it in nowhere, I'm listening to something else, and slide does get mentioned. So obviously, yeah. was um, was Ben local to the band as well? Then obviously he's feeling about there as well. So did you know him before he joined? Yeah, we sort of, it was sort of a funny moment. I think we met at a festival. We we were we were like staunch enemies, me and Ben, before he, before I asked him to join the band. And yeah, I, yeah. I, was, I was friendly with his elder sister. She was in, in, so we knew each other in sort of high school. And then we were sort of staunch enemies for some reason. But he was just this little scrappy dude character, um, you know, <laughs> got a chip on his shoulder like I did. But anyway, we become like sort of best of friends and, and we met at a festival some sort of inebriation going on and then you know we, we, we sort of fell in love in that respect and he joined the band and when we'd sort of built up the profile again and we signed with um, 24 Management then we got offered the American tour with The Who around North America and we were we were trying to introduce a keyboard player at the time our keyboard player who is now the, the bass player of, of Standing Man Paul Glover, he he couldn't make the American tour, and then I was in a position to think, ah, we need we need a keyboard player. I don't know how this is going to work. And at that time, Ben's younger brother Ryan, mm-hmm. who's the guitarist of the Keys, he had just started learning guitar and also keys. And he was he was a shy boy, but he, you know he was nice. He was totally different, totally different to to his brother Ben. But I liked Ryan straight from the bat. And, you know, he sort of suggested whether whether Ryan could do. And I don't know, did he suggest it? I can't remember. Maybe I think maybe Ben suggested Ryan to, to come in. So then we started out doing some rehearsals and then we invited Ryan on to, to the American tour with The Who at, at, at Ryan Page. Of, it was only about 20, 21 maybe. Yeah. And he came out, he, he smashed it, Ryan. He was he, he was he was very intuitive and you know anything you asked him he sort of went for it and I love that about him I sort of found some sort of connection with him it reminded me as a kid really. I well, an usually... opportunity for the boy as well to, at that age to like when you're going out and tour with the hood. Yeah, what, what, a way, what a way to cut your teeth, right? Yeah, <laughs> and I, and I, I, he took everything on board. He absorbed a lot of things. He's, he's a smart kid, Ryan. And uh, yeah, he enjoyed it. From I think I remember we were playing somewhere in Seattle, maybe, and I just wanted to mix the set up, and we hadn't really rehearsed the song that much, and it was just the main instrument is from keys, and it was like the big intro of keys, and I was like, Ryan, just go and play it, and he's like, he didn't, he didn't say oh, panic or anything like that. He just took it on board and went for it, and he smashed it. It was great. Uh, yeah, we had some good times. I still speak to him regular. He's a good lad. <laughs> How was that then going out and touring with a band like the Who? Obviously, I mean, like you mentioned, the Beatles. Um, I'd imagine the Who were kind of big in your life as well. So, how was it going out and touring with somebody like that? It, it was a bit surreal, really. Don't think we sort of, in my mind, it was that uh, imposter syndrome to some degree. But I was just like riding the, the wave. I remember doing sort of interviews for the for the BBC Northwest. And, Ben's had a quiv about, you know, it was like jumping in at the deep end, getting thrown in at the deep end. And it and it was to some degree, but we dealt with it. And when when we were traveling or when we got offered it, we had a bit of issues with, with two of the members not being able to get passports. We got passports rejected. So we were actually rehearsing with two other members. And one of that Ryan was supposed to be playing bass, I think, because really? bass player and the lead guitarist couldn't get over. Uh, didn't get got the visas rejected, but anyway, we, we sorted it just about a couple of weeks before we were go actually going on tour. So we missed the we missed the first part of the American tour, which covered um, where did it cover? Oh, it covered like Madison Square Garden and stuff. So we were a little bit you know peeved about that one. Mm. But then we headed out to we we finally got the, the the visas for the lads for the for the original band that Ben and Louis could play. But then we brought Ryan with us um, and. I think we'd headed down to Stansted, do all the sort of messing around, and it cost us quite a lot in, in lawyer fees and everything to get over there. And finally, when we got down to 
to Heathrow, I think it was actually. And we met like we met Noel Gallagher in the airport before we left, and we thought, you know, we had a picture with him, we were chatting to him. <laughs> he was heading over to, to yeah, I think he was heading, heading over to Glasgow actually that evening. And he was nice, and we were saying that, uh, you know, let's just see how it, it just felt like a good omen. And then when we landed, it was just from the first gig, every gig was amazing. It, I, I, and I'm not just saying that. I'm not just sort of throwing that away. Every gig in America, all the crowd were on the feet and cheering. And and every night, it was someone saying, I've never seen a support band get that reaction. I've never seen a support band get that reaction like that in here. People in the Who were saying the things and, you know, were pricking up the ears of Pete and Roger to some degree. And we'd chat with them. And they were very kind and nice and offering advice of things. And But we were, like, pricking the ears up of everyone. And I remember playing, like, at L.A. Staples Center we had like big labels coming down and they were saying the same thing. I've never seen a reaction like that from the support band. We had everyone on the feet. And this is from, you know, the holy grail of the, one of the bands of the pinnacle of rock legends. This is what this is the music that we grew up on listening to. And if you think about it too much, you probably get like bogged down in the thought of it. And it can, you know, I suppose you can create some sort of anxiety if you try and think about it. If you just sort of ride the wave, which it felt like I did, I didn't think I could do anything wrong because I just everything just felt right and it was calm in my mind and every every performance just seemed to like nothing can go wrong. And we one of the first gigs that we played with the, in the UK, I think it was the first gig in like Liverpool Echo when it was the Echo in Liverpool. But after the first song, like strings snapped, everything everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. You know, guitarist pants fell down, all this stuff. <laughs> so we, you learn how to deal with it. And I think once you've got over that sort of element of panic, you know, you can deal with it. And we we were tight then. We were really tight. And it was a shame that when we got back from there, you know, we, we hadn't had anything organised from a tour point of view. And I think that was like the sort of the beginning of the end after coming back from that tour. I felt anyway, because um, we just hadn't had things organised for when we got back from a touring point of view and a release point of view. We sort of... Yeah, I mean, well, that, that's the thing, because I, I was going to ask kind of if there was like a visible spike in um, fans like after that tour, if you were if you were getting more like American fans, but what you what you would have really needed to do is have a, a single to come out for them to, to go and search for and and consume really so if you've not get that to fall back on yeah definitely I, I i think we're very unlucky in many ways as as anyone that's in this industry knows you can work you, you you've got to create your own look but there's a certain element of that look that you have zero control over and you've got to have the right people around you because it's the people that are not playing the instruments that are going to get you where you need to be there's there's, there's no question about that you ain't got to this idea of doing it things on your own. You can't do it without the people in and around of any band. Um, and I think your head has to be on the right sort of, it needs to be in the right zone of, of how you, you push forward. You have to be a bit more clinical. Certainly the, at that time as well, in 2016, it was in an, it was like in between scenes as well. 2016 seemed a bit weird for us. So then we we didn't have it planned. What we should have done, to some degree, I think, is spent the whole year in, in America and just pushed that territory mm. and done those things and played more gigs, and which we would have loved and done. Certainly, we had the visas to do it. We just hadn't had the foresight of what we were doing because it was a big train, you know. We went from playing very small venues to to arenas. There was no in-between there, really. There was no, like, grad, there was no sort of big gradual journey in building up that fan base. Certainly, like, you know, with the case of done which is amazing. And I think they've done it the right way, you know. Yeah. We, we sort of got lost in the train of going, whoa. And just, we were a bit hedonistic, weren't we? So you make mistakes and do these things. I, I took a lot of responsibility for it in hindsight, in having a bit more of a direction and, and, and understanding of where we have to go. So then, you know, things go. I think it was a spike in, in fan base, certainly from Americans. We, we had like a... People were like chasing us. We were selling merch when we were on the American tour, 
And that was in after we'd finished, we'd say, we'll meet you at, you know, store, uh, uh, seating area, you know, 15B. And they were going to be selling merch and we'll sign some CDs. And when we went there, like, people went crazy. They were, like, pulling me out. Like, I was, like, running through crowds. and like, <laughs> women pulling me out. It was, like, a Beatles moment. I was, like, this is insane. I, my brother at the time was the tour manager. And uh, he always laughs about that. He was, like, remember that? It's weird. Some women pulling you out. Because you had, like, a different sort of age it's the the fan base of the in America, you know. You have a there's a there's a huge range of sort of ages as well, you know, from like a younger generation to an older generation. The mm-hmm. massive they're, they're adored. And I know the reasons why. They're amazing. Mm. So obviously you say it's kinda of like that was the, the beginning and the end for the band, like kinda of going forward. Um but if you've played the, these massive Arena shows it in America. It's it obviously gives you a taste for it, and you, there's no there's no way that you're gonna give that up anytime soon. So what was the what was the thoughts behind standing man? Was that just kind of like I need to do something, I need to keep this going? Yeah, I I, I couldn't not do it. I couldn't not uh, create, and and ultimately, I sort of. After making the decision of sort of putting the band on hiatus or whatever, after the sort of food tour, just to sort of connect that, after that we'd done the the original 2016 um, who tour around North America, we came back and one thing after another didn't go the right way we wanted, and we didn't have another tour sort of lined up of our own gigs and releases and all these things that we just hadn't planned for properly. Um, we ended up signing with a booking agent, Steve Strange, who was you know, um, God rest his soul. He, he, I think he died last year, but he was great. He was great in, in giving us a, a bit of a boost and another chance in like 18, where we went around and played a lot of festival dates and did, you know, supported Scorpions and Liam Gallagher and stuff around, around Europe and in the UK. And that was good. And there was good things going on, but I think we just, we weren't in order. We weren't in order musically. Mm-hmm. I remember we we got a chance to record with Brendan Lynch, who I loved as a producer and produced some of the best uh, Ocean Colour Scene albums. And for me, Ocean Colour Scene were like the most underrated band that's ever been. Amazing songwriters, amazing musicians. And, you know, the production on the albums he worked on was amazing. So we got to work with him. But at the time working with him, don't think it was the strongest material. We were a little bit fragmented. We were fragmented in, in our approach, maybe artistically, it just seemed a little bit forced. Anyway, we did that 2018 tour and played Isle of Wight main stage and all those things. But then I I think coming out of Hyde, something happened at Hyde Park. We played at Hyde Park, supporting Roger Waters. And uh, it was like technical issues. And I think it was just a little bit too much for me. I felt like we we drifted apart in what we wanted, in what things that we wanted and our outlooks as a, as individuals. I don't know. But anyway, you know, we had to sort of move on from that. And then you have that lull as anyone does coming out of something that's so big and such a big part of your life. It's like, this was a massive part of my life. I was thinking about it day and night. And, you know, you go in that lull of some sort of depression to some degree. And I spent a few days in bed. And then, then after that, after I got it out of my mind, I was like, right, well, I've got to do something else. So I didn't really think about it too much. I just asked Peter, the drummer, was it literally a few days? Just obviously, as I said last night, I spoke to Billy Bobby and obviously, yeah, um, catfish. When when yeah. that ended, he said he couldn't pick up like a couldn't pick up a guitar for like two to three months. Um, I I didn't do anything for a, for for a couple of days. Mine was a couple of days, and then I was like, no, 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 I ain't dying. Yeah. I think if I, if I had not done anything. That would have probably been the end of me. It probably took a, t- took a long time to get back up. And there was something in me that was like, I've got to get up and do something. I've got to get up and write, I suppose. And then I started writing little bits and the management were asking, you know, what we're doing, whether it was going to do a solo thing. And I thought it was a good idea. It sort of asked if I was going to do another adventure. I started thinking about it. And then, you know, I always like playing with Pete. He's sort of, as the drummer, in Standing Man, as he was in Slide Diggs, 
Uh-huh. He brings something out of me as a songwriter. It's very, it's very easy to work with and being able to bring new material and seeing what he's going to play on it. I usually can ask him to do certain things if I want a song to sound that I've already got it, the vision in my head or the landscape of it in my head. It usually picks up what I want. And then also he brings his own little element to him when I've not got an idea from a drum perspective. And, and having that is quite, it's, it's very useful for, for a songwriter, I think, um, especially in rock bands. So, I, yeah, I just started formulating it. And again, like I did with Sly Diggs, I was running before I could walk, really. I sh- you know, like having to plan things out a little bit more strategic. I can just be a little bit of a bull in a china shop sometimes. So then the catalyst and the idea of starting standing man was based on that that I could do this thing on my own. I could do acoustic thing. I always wrote funk, folk music. I always was interested and loved that thing, but it just didn't seem right for me. It didn't seem right going under my own name as well. And I just wanted it. I was still into, I still get the buzz of, of hearing drums and, and guitars and loud, loud rock, rock and roll, really. So, you know, I started writing music again. It felt like fresh again. It was, it was, it was, I was apprehensive, of course, because you sort of shed your skin a little bit and how this was going to formulate. I know that, the, the name would come around about seeing some article in 2013 from from a protester in Turkey against the sort of government and it was changing of governments and there was a, this figure that kept appearing and standing in front of the what would be the Houses of Parliament now, I suppose, mm-hmm. or the governments. Um, and he was just standing out in silent defiance. This idea of silent defiance, I love that. I was like, what's that? And this guy... They, they didn't know who he was and he was just in the papers all the time as the standing man. They kept getting arrested and, he, you know, he sort of brutally sort of beat him up and then after he was released, he would be back out and he'd be standing there again. And yeah. he was like immovable. So I, I love this idea of the standing man character, this silent defiance. And I've probably felt like that a little bit from time to time because I can be outspoken and I can just like not want to speak as well as so I felt like that was some sort of image of me. And, uh, you know, I wanted to try something different, explore my my desires in making rock and roll music, always like sort of psychedelic elements. And I didn't really think about it too much. I just started writing the pandemic and recorded it with Jim Spencer. Things did, felt right. Do you think then the pandemic helped you then? Because it, it kind of gave you time to kind of, develop your sound and your plan and what, what you were going to do? In one way it did and in one way it didn't. I, I think from, from as artists and creators, you have, life has to be going on around you for you to, to pull mm-hmm. from, you know? And in that time, life was not. So you had to sort of dig deep in your memory bank, I suppose, to some degree. So it was, it, it seemed a little bit harder to create from a song point of view. From a sound point of view, you know, I was always listening to music anyway there and somehow things that you're listening to at the time seeps in and inadvertently, you know, what you produce is, is probably like a, a, a combination of all the things that you're listening to at the time or mm-hmm. is the case and what you, music you're digging at the time, that usually works with me. But then I felt like I really had to dig, dig deep in those things and I wasn't again. Was I? I wanted to. If I was doing a solo project of whatever it was, I wanted to. I wanted to release with a body of work. This idea of just releasing EPs was just not igniting my my desires at all. I wanted to to, to come out shooting with a body of work, and, and we created that. It is a, it's, it's a body of work that I'm very proud of. It's been in the bank for for a long time. We only started releasing music at the end of sort of last year. Uh-huh. I know. We're heading out and, and itching to try and get the album out, and the album release has been delayed and delayed. And I get why because we have to be out on tour, which we finally are. Now. So you know, I think we're looking to release that around end of August, September time. Mm-hmm. So I'd be happy just to get that out because one, I want to get it out in the public to hear it, but also you know, I like moving forward. I want to be pushing on to to what I've got next, and I've been taking a lot of thought time. Doing a lot of writing recently of what the next album's going to be. 
right? It's good Aye, you've got that kind of, yeah. you're already looking forward to the second album. So, I mean, as you say, you get like three singles out at the moment. Yeah. Um, Be Your Own Messiah, if you don't know what to do with yourself and Changing Wind. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned before we came on, I just, I don't know how it came to me, but the, your second single, if you don't know what to do with yourself, just appeared in my consciousness a few months ago. And mm-hmm. what I didn't say to you when I first heard it, and I thought, who's this? You, I thought it was Cooler Shaker. It sounds, yeah. um, it could be off that first Cooler Shaker album, no problem. Um, I don't know, but were they any sort of influence? Obviously, if you were into like Ocean Colour scene and the Verve and all that, that point maybe maybe they were a a wee influence as well i think so again again with this with this album, I, I was like i don't want to be constrained and, and tied down with thinking about things too much i think i don't i didn't want it to be contrived i just wanted to go what is coming out of me at the moment what am i writing and it came out that way i didn't really think of an influence of going oh i want to sound like Julie shaker or i want to sound like this i was just like well how am i feeling today let's write this song how does this sound? And then obviously when I write on acoustic anyway, so all my songs are pretty much on acoustic, a little bit on a piano now and again, but I can't really play that well. Mm-hmm. So um, they'd all probably be on acoustic and ultimately acoustic guitar from an instrument is probably one of the hardest from a melody point of view and a creative point of view. <clears throat> Out of all the sort of guitars or pianos, pianos are a lot easier to come up with a melody. Um, so I like that challenge, I think. And then when it gets to the sort of studio time of how we sort of moulded that sound, it was working with the guitarist, the standing man, of, you know, Joe Caveney. He's very good. And and things just it just seemed to fit. It was like, right, okay, that, sound, that sounds right. They just It just sounded right to me. Working with Jim Spencer, he, he was good in working different elements of it. I think there's, there's a few of the songs on, on the album that are reminiscent to some degree of that 90s sound. But then there's also, a, I think it's safe to say that, that a lot of them are, are, have their own unique sort of modern sound to them from a sonic point of view, definitely. Right. So, I mean, obviously, Jam Spencer's worked with Johnny Marr in the past. So, yeah, uh, you're working with a lot of decent producers that's, that's going to... Um, spur you on to, to kind of create something that, that's going to stand the test of time, you would think. Yeah, definitely. He, um, yeah, of course, he's he's putting his name to it as well, isn't he? And, you know, Henry Broadhead, who, who helped produce some of the tracks and was mixing and, and helped with the drumming, <clears throat> a lot of the drumming aspects of it. They they influenced uh, a lot of the album. And I, and I liked that. I didn't want to be to I could have produced it. I think at the beginning when I was looking at producing the album, I was thinking I'm going to co-produce this. But then I just like to take a little step back from it and and I let them do their work because sometimes you can be a bit over controlling. I think, and I didn't really want to do it on this this first album. I thought let let the path take its own way and certainly let have involvement from the outside. Certainly from a producing point of view, some producers need that. And, and I allowed it with Jim. And yeah, I do think it's, you know, it, his his elements or his sort of touch comes out on the record as well. Mm-hmm. So you get a new single coming out in a, a few weeks. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, 23rd of June, I think. Yeah. I wasn't sure if it was June or July. That's how I was leaving it to you. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> um, New single coming out, and then will that be the last single before the album? I think so. I think so. Um, we have just sort of dem- started demoing actually newer stuff, so I don't know whether I just would like to mix things up a little bit, even maybe something that's not on the album. I don't know. I don't know. I'm always pushing new ideas, but keep getting out back. Uh, so I think it might be the last, last release. But people, it's funny now that people release four singles anyway before an album's out, isn't it? Some people release more, right? Yeah, it's it's completely changed that. It's turned in its head the, the kind of the model 
releasing yeah. music. It used to be one single, then the album would come out, and then you'd maybe get another two or three after that. But I, it seems yeah. to be, I don't, I don't personally like it. I, I, I like to just get the album and hear everything new. So yeah. an album these days, and you've heard a quarter of it already. Yeah, it takes it away from it, doesn't it? Yeah. No, I think I feel exactly the same there, man. I I, I think that uh, that have, having enough that you give it as a full package. <clears throat> I still like the album. I do. I think it, it takes, as I say from at the beginning, it's the body work, so it needs I to be totally taken. I totally get it the other way as well. Obviously, the music industry, they're kind of you need to build up a fan base and anticipation, and that's why they, they like to do drip feed it a little bit. Yeah, but yeah. It's just it's just another kind of aspect to how the music industry's changed, on it? No, definitely, it's just changed. Certainly, I remember going back into it with the standing man and thinking, only a couple of years, but my god, it's changed so much, mm. so much, so much in the sense of uh, the idea of this. The disconnect, isn't it, from like social media and, and the platforms in which we listen to music. Whilst social media has these elements, so like the Instagrams, Facebooks, and uh, Twitter and TikTok, they have you. You can there's music on that platform you can listen to. But then the the places in which people listen to music, like Spotify and Apple Music and all those things, there's a disconnect between those. While people can share from one to another. Spotify don't really make it easy for you to be, you know, sending fans back to like your social media so they can follow you and take your next thing. And and that for me is like really weird. It was my mind. I was speaking to the to the guy at the head of the Amazon Music uh, streaming platform recently, and uh, I was saying the same thing. I was like, well, I wonder why that is. Why is that? Why is there still this disconnect? At least in the time of the early sort of two thousands and active monkey times like MySpace was good because there's a page yeah. content social media and then but you had music you had the music there you could listen to and and I don't know why that is then that's that's the next journey surely that people have got to switch on to to try and connect you know not everyone's happy the way in which music is put out in the world now mm-hmm. I did float this idea a couple of months ago to one of my pals he's um. He's right in IT, and I did float the idea yeah. of bringing back some sort of MySpace uh, specifically for music. Yeah. Um, but I've not got a spare um, £200 billion pounds or whatever. To, <laughs> but I've got the idea in my head. Uh, yeah. So what's coming up then? Are, are you going out and tour again? As you get another, you get another support with the Who? Have I got yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah. So we've got um, in about we've got the single release on this twenty third of June, um, which we're just doing a, a local gig in, in our hometown of Warrington as a warm for this tour that we head out on like the twenty sixth, and we're supporting a band called Vintage Trouble around mm-hmm. Europe and the UK, and that's about twenty two dates, I think. And in between that, when we come home, we're supporting again the Who. In St. Helens on the 21st of July, um, with UB40 as well at the St. Helens. Yeah. So that's exciting. I feel like I'm back, I'm back at it again. I'm back at me, mate. So have you got a good relationship with, with the, the who? If, how, how do you kind of, how do they keep coming back to you? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's from the management, uh, definitely from, from there that have put us on. But you know, I've, I've, we always have. Everyone's always been pleasant. Did the band as well as as obviously Peter and Roger have always been very pleasant and and kind. But the band as well at playing and amongst them and Simon Townsend and Zach and stuff. So it's good that 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 we've been you know offered the chance again to do it. So I'm excited to meet those guys again and sort of tell them where I'm up to. So it does feel like a second bite of the. Uh, the charity really to get out that, there and do it. That sounds amazing. Um, and what obviously when the album comes out, will you be doing? Will you be touring that? Will you be doing like that? Yeah, I think I think we've got an idea of some sort of headline shows in and around the the album release there, and then 
potentially another support coming up later on in the year, another support tour. Because I think, it, you know, it's a good way to build up. Mm -hmm. And it's good that, you know, bands are giving, uh, you know, new artists on the scene chances to get out there. I, I'm always deterred by by huge bands giving other huge bands supporting roles. Uh, yeah, that, you know, they, they, they've got to generate money, so I get that. But I think in this day and age, they've got to play a part in being able to help up and come with music because it's at their feet that the industry carries on and goes in yeah. a better way, you know. The issues with like the venues and the grassroots venues having issues. But I think everyone's got to play a part in being able to to help up and coming artists because if, if there's only some people helping up, up and coming artists then the culture as we know it is going to die out man. yeah you know? I noticed this a few weeks back I've seen um, Razorlight Razorlight had announced a tour it's like one of the big kind of outdoor outdoor shows and they've right. got like um, the, the Hoosiers I think and the feeling maybe that's right with them and you're like one they three bands probably don't need it as much as an up and coming band would need it and again like they bands don't really fit with razor light either yeah doesn't seem right it's a it's a bit weird isn't it i, d I don't know the full ins and outs of that and obviously like the bands like Hoosier and all those they you know it's their, it's their livelihood so we've got to play so i get that you know they're going to accept things, but I know what you mean. I, but I, I would, I would, that's all more acceptable for me. I, what I don't deem as acceptable is like when they're really big bands that they should be having support bands on there. Mm -hmm. No disrespect to the, to the God that Paul McCartney is, but when I've not seen any bands that support him, stuff like that. Yeah. I think because he has big shows and I think they should be letting Coldplay do well in bringing like up and coming artists. And, you two, do you two have like big guys? They had like Noel Gallagher on for like good yeah, few weeks, didn't they? And I was like, really? I know that he's just bringing his mates on tour. I was like, come on, you should be helping out some young guys. But then because... you look at Liam. Like I've, I've seen Liam a, a few times at the Hydro, and he's all he's always kind of got somebody up and coming. He's yeah, he has. Yeah, Ellen John Thomas. He's had on a few times. He's had the Rats, yeah. Liverpool band. Um, yeah, so uh, he's kind of pushing it and promoting the, the newer act. No, definitely. They've done the right thing of that, seeing that, yeah. And I think that's how it should be, right? Yeah. Those bands, giving them some air, air time, space on tour. Because it's the best way of uh, it's the best way of picking up fans in that respect, that and radio, I suppose. But having good tracks. Because there's, there's so much music coming out. There's a lot to contend with, right? The industry is a bit... Uh, it's diluted in the sense that 60,000, 65,000 songs released every day or some nonsense like that. So, yeah, I mean, even just where you are in the northwest, the amount of the amount of like young up and coming bands running about you, it's yeah, it's, isn't it? it's constant, man. It's like a conveyor belt of talent, and it needs to it needs to go somewhere at the end, but yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. And not not everyone will get through. Not everyone is good. Not everyone is 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 amazing. But like you know, you you the, it, the fact that there is more and more talent coming out there is that there is some amazing bands and there is that are not getting any sort of air, air time. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of great music coming out. I think at the moment, I think in this country everyone's a bit apprehensive, aren't they, of of rock music? I don't know whether it seems to be a lot more appreciated in 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 America and Europe. Here, less so, I think. This idea of like the rock star is dead a bit in the UK, I find, you know. Certainly think, any... No, I well, mean, well, it's I, hard, I think... isn't it? Because, like, if, if you're into that music, like, it's myself and all my mates, so you don't really notice it because um, I surround myself with, with people that like the same music, so you. Yeah. What's that? I, I just have, I just, my just thought of it is that, um, that the people that you know that are in control of what gets released and what what gets big and what doesn't that they are trying to shy away from that the idea of of the archetypal rock and roll star the lager yeah. well I, I don't know i i have a theory of it probably don't know 
but I just think that, that that there's some sort of control over over trying to push down a little bit. It's so hard to get into like rock music seems to be the the one that has so many like subcultures and, and fan bases that people really want to go out. There's a reasons why Sam Fender goes and sells out. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think James's pack, like it does there. Because the people want it. But then, you know, how it's sold and how it gets out there is a little different. Because there's so much pop music you're trying to contend with as well, I think. I don't know. I, I, like, I like being the underground anyway. I, f I think a lot it's kind of blurred down it now between the pop and the, the rock. Yeah. I don't like to say too much on here, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, I so obviously, single it, um, touring a wee bit, and then an album it. I'd hope to see you up. And Glasgow at some point, man, it'd be ideal to see you up here. Yeah, definitely. Love Glasgow. Um, but I, that's us towards the end of the, the interview. Obviously, the last bit, obviously, it being the podcast called Time for Heroes. And I asked for my guests to pick four heroes to come for dinner. Um, why Why are your heroes? Why you picked them? And what you cut them? Right. Why I picked them and what was that, sorry? Uh, what what would you cook them as well? What would I cook them? Oh, right, yeah. that's good. That, that's it basically, it's basically just to see how good a cook you are, whether you're... <laughs> I'm, you know what? I'm, I'm actually quite decent. Um, so, I, I bet lots of people pick him, but it'd be John Lennon, wouldn't it? Because his character. And uh, he's, he's one. Who else would I choose? I'd choose Oscar Wilde. Conversationalist, isn't it? He'd uh -huh. be good on the dinner party. I would choose uh, anyone from history. Yeah, yeah. anybody right. you like. Uh, so I'd, I'd have, I've been reading a lot of uh, Marcus Aurelius's meditations, so maybe him. He'd be a character. I mm -hmm. like him. I feel like that. Quite nerdy, that one, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> and then uh, who else would I choose? Maybe James Brown. James Brown would be crazy, wouldn't he? Right. Yeah. These are, these are good packs as well because <laughs> um, no, it, it's nice when people, it's refreshing when they, they, they pack different people. Yeah. 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 So I, know, I know John Lennon gets the all the time. Well, this is what I was, I was saying. I mean, this is us up to about episode 45. So once I get to episode 50, I'm, I'm going to look back through the episodes and do like a league table. Yes. Yeah. Um, we're looking back and now I'd imagine John Lennon's kind of about 30 points clear every day else. <laughs> he was constantly. Uh, but I, so I mean, I, they're great picks. And what would you, what would you cook for them? What would I cook for them? Big, big shepherd's pie. Keith Richards recipe of uh, shepherd's pie for all of them. Well, that's brilliant as well. Yeah, I've got it. I should have chose Keith, really. Okay, we'll, we'll put teeth in as well. I like, um, yeah, you can help me serve. <laughs> <laughs> I like to say, I mean, nobody seems to follow the structure of this anyway. I, I had um, Gemma Clark for Baby Shambles on the episode, oh, nice. her son, she picked about she must have picked about 15 guests. So, <laughs> um, I, I allow honorary mentions and stuff like that, but yeah, nice. I, it's a pleasure having you on the day, Dean. Um, just obviously before we go, um, where can people find you if they want to come search for you? Yeah, I think so. You can get us all on on the streaming platforms on Spotify and Apple Music at Standing Man Without the G, or you can follow us on the social media pages, which is again Instagram. I think is Standing Man Without the G. Uh, then we got Twitter is Standing Man Standard underscore Man. And all those things, but you can get us on our website, which is standingman.com. Without the G, man, come and see us. Check us out. Well, I'll, I'll post all your links in the, the show notes anyway, so people can get them there if, they, if, if they're struggling to find it. But I, um, if you can, people going out and see Standing Man, wherever you can, they're going to be massive. That's um, right. Thanks, Brian. Pleasure to meet you, mate. Pleasure, mate. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. 
If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes Podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes Podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes Pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. 